Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up and sun down, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. So let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day. Great to have your company today on Countrywide. Kit Malkin with you here with a wrap of all the farming news happening around Australia that you need to know about. Speaking of news, there's not much good news around for shoppers lately at the till with inflation, but there might be a bit of relief on the horizon for red meat eaters. That story just around the corner. Also, when you're a farmer with livestock, bigger is generally better. But are Australian sheep getting too big to shear? The Australian agricultural industry, shearing industry, I think we really do need to stand back and and evaluate things. But first, it's pretty hard to escape talking about the weather at the moment, especially if you live on the east coast of Australia. Land buybacks were even put on the table by the New South Wales government this week for people living in floodplain areas. You're going to hear about that in a tick. But what's causing all this rain and is it here to stay? If you have been thinking about putting the gumboots away, consider taking a rain check, particularly if you live on the east coast, because we might be about to experience a rare third La Nina. It's the weather pattern that has not only caused chaos for people living on Australia's east coast, but caused the price of food staples like lettuce to skyrocket after floods wiped out crops. So how rare is it to get a third year of La Nina? Joining me on the line is veteran rural reporter and current ABC weather and climate reporter, Tyne Logan. Hey, Tyne. Hello, veteran rural reporter. I feel like it makes me sound really old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've definitely uh, earned your stripes down on the south coast of WA. So, Tyne, it's looking likely that we'll have three La Ninas in a row. How unlikely is that? Well, yeah, I mean, if it eventuates, it's not very likely at all. There's actually only been uh, a record of three back-to-back La Niñas, which is what it would be, three times since 1900. So that was in 1954, 1973 and 1998. So, yeah, when it's only happened three times in the last 120 years, yeah, that's when you say, what's going on? And I'm sure anyone living on the East Coast can probably tell you exactly what it means, but in layman's terms, when a La Nina is declared, and one hasn't actually been declared, but it's looking likely, uh, what what impacts are there in Australia when one is declared? So I guess the biggest impacts are relating to rainfall, right? So it's not a guarantee of wet weather, um, and it's not the only climate driver at play, but it does help tip the odds a certain way, and La Nina means tipping the odds towards wetter than normal weather. So at the moment, the Weather Bureau's three-month climate outlook is showing uh, a high chance of above-average rainfall, really for most of the eastern two-thirds of the Australian mainland, and that's for between September and November. So long story short, more wet weather. Sorry. So this uh, news, it's come out of the US. The bomb, I believe they haven't called it yet. Why is that? Are they sort of waiting for a bit more certainty? Yeah, so uh, the bomb here in Australia and the United States use a slightly different criteria 
So the United States has already called La Nina. You know, they're, they're looking at the same models. They're using um, the same, I guess, data in terms of looking at the ocean temperatures. BOM is saying it's pretty much going to be going to be declared. They're saying when it's on a La Nina alert, which is now 70% of the time, we get a La Nina year. The United States is saying, yeah, we're ready to call it. It's going to happen. And we know pretty well what the effects have been here in Australia with those nasty floods earlier this year that just, you know, seem to have not been ending. Uh, What about on the other side of the world? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it kind of depends where you are, but it does the opposite in the US. It brings drought to the southern part of the US. And then for Canada, it usually means a colder winter for the western half of Canada and also a wetter winter along the west coast near the Great Lakes. And over in WA, where you are at the moment, Tyne, you seem to have missed most of the bad weather. Is that just luck or is it something to do with the way that La Nina actually works? Yeah, well, there's a few different things at play. If we're talking about the southern half of um, WA, which is where most of the population is, yeah, it's, you're right. It's not just luck. It's kind of because of the way we get our rainfall here in southwest WA. So most of the rainfall, the winter rainfall in particular, comes from cold fronts and low pressure systems that move up from the Southern Ocean. And when we're talking about La Nina and also the um, negative Indian Ocean dipole, which is underway right now, uh, which is basically the same thing as La Nina, but on for the Indian Ocean, as the name would suggest, they are tropical type systems. So they will send a lot of tropical moisture from the Gascoigne down into the East Coast, but it kind of leaves this corner of Southwest WA untouched, uninfluenced by that system. Instead, we just keep uh, getting rainfall or not getting rainfall from those cold fronts. And because of climate change, we're seeing those type of systems deliver less rain. And so that's why, you know, you're constantly hearing stories about drier than average winters, really hot summers here in Western Australia. And certainly up until this month, that's, that's been the case. So how are farmers doing uh, in southern WA this season with a lot of people in, on the East Coast sort of washed out? Yeah, I mean, it's a very different story here. It's not, it's not so bad. We've actually just had a... It was not looking good in June at all. It was, at least for Perth, um, the driest June on record. July was a little bit more average, but this last couple of weeks of August have actually been really, really wet. Perhaps a little bit too late or a little bit later than a lot of farmers, um, particularly in the Midwest and Wheatbelt, would have liked. But we don't say no to rain, (laughs) I think is kind of summation of it, really. One last question. I know this is a bit of crystal ball gazing and you probably, in good conscience, can't answer it, but is it ever going to stop raining? When are we going to see the end of this? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I hope it does stop raining at some point for for you guys. I feel like, uh, you know, you just hear endless stories of of flooding and and rain over there. And I guess, you know, some of the the added element is for the last two, two and a half years straight, you've had these climate drivers tipping the odds towards wetter weather. I mean, we're heading into summer. This doesn't mean it's going to rain every day. So I guess, you know, I hope for your sake there is some days of sunshine like summer is meant to bring. Is it ever going to stop raining? Yeah. Of course. One day. A glass half full there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Got to be. Thank you so much, Tyne, for joining me. That was Tyne Logan, uh, climate and weather reporter for the ABC. 
From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Sticking with the rain, the New South Wales government is launching a buyback program for property on floodplains as part of its response to the terrible floods in the state earlier this year. A quarter of the world's best farming land is on floodplains where the soil is rich and there's a good source of water. But climate change is making it riskier to live and farm in those areas. There's also a biodiversity hotspot. So what is the best way to manage them in the future? David Clawton looks at the changes in New South Wales. The Flood Inquiry report was co-written by former Chief Scientist in New South Wales, Mary O'Kane. Here's Mary O'Kane outlining the changes to the way they're looking at floodplains. The floodplains should be recognised as assets, but not assets that we live on. Assets that we use for a variety of things, whether it be renewable energy, whether it be parks, whether it be biodiversity offsets. There's lots of very important uses for the floodplains and they should come back into public ownership, maybe leased again on 99-year leases. The focus of these changes is likely to be in the big population areas along the northern rivers of New South Wales and in western Sydney along the Hawkesbury, where large numbers of people are living on the floodplains. Professor Damien Maher from Southern Cross University has been looking at the report and thinks the challenges will be greatest in those areas. Yeah, that's going to be an extremely uh, complicated issue. Um, you know, they're, they're talking about putting several million people into that catchment over the coming decades. So how, how they're going to manage that, yeah, will be definitely a very tricky situation. So one of the ideas expressed is that you could take some of the people out of those areas. People shouldn't be living in those floodplain areas, but you could still lease the land back and encourage things like agriculture. So, so agriculture is still seen as an important and useful low-risk activity on floodplains. Yeah, look, that, that it, it makes sense to have beneficial uses of those floodplains, um, you know, if it's managed appropriately and, again, you know, kind of restoring watercourses and riparian vegetation, uh, if that can be done in conjunction with agriculture, then it's a, a win-win Obviously, if we're talking about things like, um, you know, uh, beef cattle grazing, horticulture, for example, on the floodplain. Well, there's a lot of sugarcane up in your area as well, isn't there? What what about that? A lot of sugarcane and also um, macadamias on the floodplain, which, you know, uh, there was some serious damage to those uh, crops during the recent floods. So, you know, it really needs to be carefully considered. And there's... Obviously, calls at these sorts of times for more flood mitigation work, so so things that can channel the water away from important areas where people are living. But but they also talk about letting watercourses largely uh, flow naturally rather than implementing those big engineering barriers. So, have you got a sense of where they might be heading with that? Yeah, look, I'm I'm really happy to see that that was one of the recommendations. Um, you know, just due to the size and the complexity uh, of of the catchment here um, in in the Richmond River, um, you know, it's it's really not feasible to implement engineering solutions. You might be able to protect, you know, some small pockets of uh, residential areas or or business areas, but then that, you know, has upstream and downstream effects. You know, where uh, water will travel faster, be more destructive and reach higher heights. So, um, yeah, I was really happy to see that the report wasn't all about building dams and 
levees and um, engineering solutions. The report talks about returning floodplain areas to biodiversity, partly to create more carbon offsets that could be used to offset housing developments elsewhere, something Professor Ma thinks might work. There's a lot of talk about, um, you know, just restoring natural systems and, you know, cashing in on the, the carbon that's stored in those systems. But we need to be really careful that, uh, you know, whatever money we're investing in terms of um you know, offsetting um, carbon emissions, it's, it's done in the most efficient way. So we've certainly lost uh, a lot of biodiversity, um, you know, in these floodplains over the years. So if we can restore some of that, then, um, yeah, that, 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 that's a great outcome. Buying back floodplain land is a priority for the New South Wales government, but how that might affect farmers or how the leaseback option might work is still unclear, and some very big industries are still working out what this all means for them. Norco's dairy plant and the Sunshine Sugar Mill were both smashed by the floods, but Mary O'Kane wouldn't be drawn on the future of those plants beyond saying the floodplains aren't suitable for industry. David Clawton with that report. Now, one of the most heartbreaking images that emerged from the floods were dairy cows being washed away on a farm outside Lismore in northern New South Wales. Paul Weir is still in the process of rebuilding his herd, his dairy and his home, while his business in South Lismore was also destroyed. The director of dairy company Norco spoke to Kim Honan about the recommendations coming out of the state's flood inquiry report and what he believes needs to be done. There's a lot of words there on those pages. There's a few compromises that, that also disappoint me. At one point they're talking about mitigation and looking at dams and all that sort of stuff, but then three lines down they're actually talking in the environmental section. They're looking at we want to keep the river as natural as possible. So, so I, I don't know which way they want it. But, yeah, at the end of the day, mitigation is the only thing that's actually going to make a difference to Lismore and downstream. As I said to uh, Scott Morrison and Don Perrottet two weeks after the, the initial flood in February when they were standing in my dairy, uh, I said, you boys have got to put your big boy pants on and actually uh, fix this. And it's a mitigation above, the, above Lismore and uh, on both rivers. Yeah, only those guys can do it. And uh, they just have to, uh, for myself, uh, ignore the, the noisy minority who, who are against anything, you know, and... Uh, Mitigation above Lismore ticks all the boxes because it's um, we've got a water drinking water shortage. We've been looking at dams for years, and, and here's ways that we can actually do it and fix it and uh, fix a lot of the North Coast's problems or Lismore's problems and downriver. And where should a, a dam or dams go? Well, it's not about holding back all the water, and that's what it's certainly not. Above my place, you know, there's four main streams, and if you can stop them from all peaking at the same time. If you can hold two of them back from peaking at the same time, even if it's only four or five hours, it, that, that's actually going to reduce the uh, the peak in, in Lismore and then downstream. And uh, that's all you have to do. And, uh, you know, you don't even have to dam it. It could be, you know, dry gullies, but that, that just hold the water up for a period of time. But, um, yeah, as long as something like that gets done... I mean, we've all known Lismore's had a fetish for the Lismore Council over the last 30, 40 years of, of filling the floodplain in, in, in Lismore, which has created all, a lot of this trouble. Uh, it certainly hasn't helped and put a lot more people at risk. And, and, and we've just got to get over that. And I do agree with what he's saying, that any new development, that does need to be 
doesn't need to be high and dry. The other thing I did, I talked to the uh, three weeks after or two weeks after when they come visit our farm, Scott Morrison and, and Don Perrottet, and was insurance. We need insurance and uh, make, to make sure we have got affordable insurance, and uh, that's what that's what needs to happen for Lismore to grow. And, uh, and unless they're prepared to uh, to do something like that, uh, like they did in North Queensland as far as cyclone damage, uh, once again that that's going to be an impairment to people moving into the region and businesses are still, still moving on, you know. Um, look, we've all, everybody I know, even ourselves, we've changed our flood plan, we're rebuilding things differently, um, our dairy plan and all that sort of stuff, we're, we're lifting up even higher again above that. Um, we've changed our flood plan in relation to the February flood. So we will do everything we can, and I know every business in town will, and, and most people in their houses certainly will do something different next time, but... Um, Unfortunately, the issues of this flood were absolutely disgraceful uh, forecasting, which I don't know how they could ever get it this wrong, you know, being metres wrong. Fair enough being um, millimetres or, uh, you know, a foot wrong, but to be metres wrong was is, is what actually created a lot of the human damage this time and uh, stress, and that's, that's really been a... That's been a sad one. Paul Weir, Tungcuster dairy farmer, South Lismore business owner and director of the dairy co-op Norco, speaking to Kim Honan. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. For those feeling the pinch at the butcher, finally, some good news. Red meat prices might finally be on their way down. It's all to do with the amount of livestock we have in Australia. Farmers have been busy rebuilding the national sheep flock and cattle herd after the 2017 to 2019 drought. To put it into a little bit of perspective, three years ago, the number of sheep in Australia was at the lowest level since 1904. Livestock analyst Peter Quilty says that's beginning to turn around. They've come in at 24.43 24.43 million in terms of the cattle herd size and the, the flock size at 68 million. So that all points to one, a very healthy rebuild that's been going on in terms of the sheep flock. Um, and so the numbers are there. I think, though, the real challenge to me, you know, we've had this dramatic drop. I think we're going to see a rebound in the next three to four weeks. But when it comes to the production of lamb, It's that the issue there is labour continues to dog the industry. Uh, In terms of cattle, it's a slightly different story. But I think the market was oversold, you might say, on the way down here. There was the scare of FMD that got a lot of publicity, but also just the sheer numbers that are now starting to come forward and the lack of labour to process them, I think is part of the reason why prices got overdone. If we move forward six, 12 months, uh, where do you think those prices would be at? I think we are going to see with the lamb industry an ongoing further fall. And I have the low next year in May for heavy lambs at around 550 a kilo from you know today's current levels. Now, To me, this could actually be the low for several years. And so part of that is due to that ongoing expansion where we've got the flock expanding next year to around about 72 million head next year. And then the year later, um, a milder increase to 74 and potentially 75 in 2025. 
So, Peter, it's that enormous increase that we're expecting in terms of the ongoing expansion of the flock that will lead to more numbers and, as a result, you know, the, a, a bit more pressure on the pricing. You, what's been interesting out of these figures in terms of the herd rebuild in Australia is New South Wales. New South Wales really was quite extraordinary in what it did in the 2021 um, year. It jumped in terms of the sheep meat numbers by a dramatic 21.3%, which almost is, is unheard of. And in terms of cattle, it jumped there by 15.1%. So these are extraordinary numbers for New South Wales, but highlights the severity of the drought in 2018 and 19 in New South Wales. So to me, during that year of both 20 and 2021, Peter, they begged, borrowed and stole, you might say, every animal they could, whether it was cattle or sheep, from other states. So with the cattle, it came out of Queensland, there's no doubt. And with sheep, it was Western Australia and probably Victoria where the bulk of that came from. So much so that Western Australia's sheep flock in last year actually went 7% lower than the previous year. So it has been truly challenged in its own rebuild because of the enormous buying out of New South Wales. So, Peter, with this recent correction in pricing, you've got to remember that last year and the year before, New South Wales was driving prices for both cattle and sheep because they were looking to rebuild as quickly as they could. This year, that same intensity of buying out of New South Wales for that rebuild is no longer what it was. So you might say that pressure or that extra you know, demand that was there to me is quietened down because New South Wales in part has its fill. Independent livestock industry analyst Simon Quilty speaking there with Peter Somerville. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. To international news now, and Meat and Livestock Australia has announced it's spending $1.3 million to fund a vaccine project in Indonesia, allowing cattle importers to buy up to 600,000 vaccines to protect stock from foot and mouth disease and in turn try to protect Australia from an outbreak here. The CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Association, Mark Harvey Sutton, says it's a great decision that will hopefully give the live export trade a boost in confidence. Oh, well, look, the, the importers in Indonesia have been sourcing their own vaccine, but it has been uh, challenging for them. There's no doubt about that. But pleasingly, uh, Meat and Livestock Australia have made funding available for the importers in Indonesia to the tune of $1.3 million. Uh, and that will help reimburse those importers for uh, those vaccines, which is a great outcome for management of FMD in Indonesia and uh, part of our industry's efforts to help limit the spread. So now with these extra vaccine doses for the feedlot sector, what do you hope that will mean for the live cattle trade out of Australia? 
I'm hoping it renews confidence, Matt. Uh, there's no doubt um, movements have slowed. Um, there has been a level of uncertainty consistently throughout uh, since knowing that foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease is in Indonesia. We've been trying to make sure that there is that confidence in the industry and that this is approached pragmatically. But ultimately, uh, if importers have the ability to vaccinate their cattle, they have the ability to manage the disease. Uh, and that's so important. That, that builds their confidence. There's no shortage of demand. Indonesia still wants our cattle. Uh, and hopefully this contributes positively to that. And there are a few ships on the move out of Darwin, also out of Townsville. What's your take on how the trade's faring right now? Oh, look, I think it's steady. I think it's steady. Uh, there's no doubt uh, we're coming off the back of a bit of a period of low supply and high prices. I, I noticed that the, the prices eased a little bit. I, th I think we'll start to see volumes increase um, over the next little while. That all remains to be seen, of course. But, you know, I think the... The conditions are right. Uh, and as, as I always point to, Matt, there is no shortage of demand for our livestock internationally. And that's that's just the key piece in the whole thing. CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Association, Mark Harvey Sutton, speaking there to Matt Brand. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. A sheep getting too big to find shearers to shear them. It's a debate that's been playing out for a while now and it was reignited recently at the Australian Sheep and Wool Show in Victoria when a ram weighing more than 170 kilograms sold for $115,000. Wow, imagine trying to shear his kids. Rural reporter Angus Verley caught up with Trent Carter, the president of the Manu Stud Merino Breeders Association at the Victorian State Merino Field Day and asked him for his thoughts. Oh look it certainly is a debate and that debate will vary depending on who you're speaking to. Obviously naturally the general progression of, of the way you appeal and draw to a certain animal, bigger is always better but how big is is best and that's probably the, the question we're talking about now. The industry, we do need to sit back and, and look at the, the broader industry as a whole. Uh, there's a lot of underlying issues, issues that potentially may pop up and yeah the size of the animals uh, that I suppose shearers, handlers, physical staff in yards, drenching, uh, there is certainly some workplace issues that may come in play in future. So in some cases at least, have rams got too big? Yep, as I said, each a very personal view. Uh, yes, some rams are too big for sure. Uh, there are certain a lot of environments and breeding goals and directions around the country. Uh, yes, big is best for sure, up in the pastoralist areas of, of Australia. Uh, in my personal view, yes, push down below into the high rainfall, uh, higher stocking rate areas and bigger certainly isn't best. It all gets back to, I suppose, returns per DSE and in my personal experience, yes, the bigger sheep does fall away in those areas. The animal has to be built for purpose and that purpose does vary a lot around Australia. How much of a problem is it for those people who are running bigger animals to, to find people to shear them? Look, shearing's, I think, as I said, only, only one issue, yes. Uh, it is getting a, a picky industry really now I think every industry everyone's struggling to find employees and staff the world's their oyster when they're looking for a job they can just say no and yes and pick and choose where they want to go so the Australian I suppose agricultural industry shearing industry I think we really do need to stand back and and evaluate things number one I suppose the the shearing infrastructure sheds 
you know, gone are the days when we had shearing crews coming through and they'd live in the shearers' quarters. Uh, toilets, kitchens, amenities, all those things really need to look that hard. I think the agricultural shearing industry as a whole is well and truly behind. Um, you look at other industries, you know, 15 kilos and I dare lift above without support. Uh, you know, a lot of females in the shearing industry now and are doing a, such a phenomenal job from shed staff all the way through to shearing. So, you know, support them, back them. Big is certainly uh, going to be an issue and potentially is an issue. That was Trent Carter, president of the Manu Stud Merino Breeders Association, speaking there with Angus Burley. And that's all we have time for today on Countrywide. I'm Kit Mocken. It's been great to have your company. For more on any of these stories, you can head to our website, abc.net.au rural. Bye for now.